0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. A church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. And thank you for feeding us, Lord, in the Holy Mysteries. And we're thankful that you have not left us to our own devices, Lord, but you've given us the means of grace to to both give and distribute and remind us of who we are in your Son. And um, Lord, we need weekly reminders of that. We, re- we need daily reminders, but we're so grateful for the pattern of our worship that allows us at least one day of week to be brought back into some sort of equilibrium about who we are and who you are and set us on that course even this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Luke 15 this morning. If you have phones with Bibles or Bibles here, and there's there's a struggle, I think, with Luke 15, because of all of Jesus's parables, these are without doubt the most well known. We all know these, and familiarity can breed a certain level of not necessarily contempt, but familiarity, right? Um, and so I think you know I. The danger that I have is to try to be cute with this, you know, to kind of, you know, give you give you something new. And uh, and really, the, the the beauty of these parables is what they de- what they've delivered for so long. Um, so we'll sort of work through these quickly. And but there's there's a common thread that's going on throughout Luke 15, and it's related to what we've already seen in Luke 14, 13 and 12. There's a common thread that's holding together this parabolic discourse of Jesus, and that is. Um, who gets to eat with Jesus at His kingdom banquet? Who gets to eat with Jesus? That's why Luke fifteen one, which I'll read, and two, which I'll read you right now, are so important to understand the shape of of, of Luke fifteen in its entirety and what these parables are trying to lean into. Uh, Luke fifteen one. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes they grumbled. Saying, "This man receives sinners, and he eats with them." Uh, now, just while we're here, it's worth looking at the last verses as well of this chapter. Um, but he answered his father, "Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed any of your commands. You know this part. But when the son of yours came, who was devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him." And he said to him, "Son." You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this notion about a celebration, we'll see these these linking patterns that hold together these three parables. But this this notion of celebrating and rejoicing, the finding of that which was lost is central here. And the challenge is one of an open invitation. So that I don't bury the lead here. And I'll I'll say this probably multiple times this morning. So I don't bury the lead. Um, The way in which the parable of the prodigal son ends is open in the sense of its conclusion. Now, we don't know what happens. Now, uh, we can put some of the pieces together, but it's open-ended. In a sense, it's a kind of invitation. If I can put this in terms of my Baptist upbringing... You know the 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 invitation hymn begins before any sort of conclusion is made, and now now you're open to come forward if you'd like to come forward and and pray. Um, Did any of you grow up like that where you did like yes? When I grew up like this where we did you know invitations every Sunday, and I've been out of that rhythm for a while. And I think my second or third year at Beeson, I was preaching at a Baptist church in Huntsville, um, filling in for someone, and and the minister before the Sermon we met in the office, and the minister said to me, "Would you like to do the call at the end?" Um, and I'm—I was in the Presbyterian world at the moment. I'm kind of an Angletarian, you know that about I me. Mean um, and so I, I was—I was in the Presbyterian Church at that point in time, and um, and I said, "The call you're going to have to remind me about." Well, what's the call? And uh, and the minister said, "Well, that's when you can invite people to come forward uh, if they want to receive the Lord as their Savior." And I. I was just trying to play with this minister. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Presbyterian. We don't really care if people get saved or not. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I said, I'm just teasing. I'm just, we do care. We do care. But I said, but I'm, I'm out of practice on that. You, you go ahead and do the call, and I'll sit down, right? Um, all to say, that that's, that's the force, I think, that you feel of Luke 15. It's open-ended in the sense of, and it's open-ended for us. I think that's where I'm trying to get with that. It's open-ended for the original situation that Jesus had in his interlocution with the Pharisees, but it's also open-ended for us. There, there's a kind of challenge here for us to see ourselves in these stories. And I think that's one of the power of these, these parables and why they had this kind of enduring effect in the life of the church is w- wittingly or unwittingly we are in the parable and we find ourselves somewhat reflected in all of the figures We're the lost coin. We're the woman seeking. We're the you know we find we're the father at times. We're the elder brother. We're the younger brother. We're we're all of those at different moments in time, and at the same time, which is the kind of power of and the effect of the of our own selves and the complexity of our own psychology and spiritual lives, and our lives lived before God. So again, the bigger picture here is um, who gets to eat with Jesus at his kingdom meal. I heard my sister in law thinking about these kingdom meals. My sister in law did a uh, Ruth. Are you in here? Um, she she did a a um choral recital I mean a solo recital soprano recital at Sanford it was remarkable and she one of her pieces that she did was the Samuel bar Barber's Hermit Songs do you know these YouTube them they're fascinating now, the fourth uh, movement is called the Heavenly Banquet which very much sits I think with what we're doing here and I, I love this imagery can I can I read to you this I would like to have the men of heaven in my house with vats of good cheer laid out for them. I would like to have the three Marys. Their fame is so great. I would like people from every corner of heaven. I would like them to be cheerful in their drinking. I would like to have Jesus sitting here among them. I would like a great lake of beer for the king of kings. I would like to be watching heaven's family drinking it through all eternity. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? No, I and mean, it's set to this sort of beautiful, sort of upbeat sense. I, I think that's what we have here is a scene of Jesus opening his heavenly banquet table here on earth. We're getting a foretaste of what is to come. Here on earth, he's opening his heavenly banquet table. And of course, the challenge that we have before us is all, all the wrong people are sitting at the table. Which, by the way, we all know that is very good news for you and for me. right? Because we are, we are the wrong people. Right? So if you think about these, these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then and notice the plural here: the lost sons, plural. Um, and and here are some of the th- the links that hold it together. All right, number one, sinners are viewed as lost. Now that's important. All right, so Jesus, and, and I think this is really crucial. One of the things you'll notice about Jesus's interaction with sinners is that he never downplays the significance of their status as sinners. In other words, he's, he doesn't take a kind of Um, what I would call kind of a a modern dismissive approach to sin, and it's maybe a lack of, it's inconsequential status. You remember, for example, that Jesus with the woman uh, caught in adultery in John chapter 4, um, I mean, he he steps in and in a really powerful scene um, protects this woman from the oncoming, no, no, John 8, not 4, John 8, protects this woman from the oncoming crowd, um, and he says, those of you without sin cast the first stone and then everyone starts to leave. Um, and uh, But what we often forget in that scene is the final thing that Jesus says to this woman before she leaves. You remember this? Right? So don't do not do that anymore. Um, and, and so I think we have that sense here as well that all the, the pictures of lostness, whether it's the sheep, the coin, or the lost son, at least the first one, that the lostness is identified with their sinful status. And that's important because um, sinners don't always know that they're lost. I mean, this isn't necessarily a matter of human consciousness. Th- this is a reality um, that 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 God God is saying something about the status of those who have set themselves up over against God and His law, His instruction. And that's every human being. Every human being is lost in a sinful state, whether they know it or not. And sometimes the lack of knowledge itself can be the most terrifying aspect of it. Now, Romans chapter 1, for example, talks about the wrath of God being poured out on the children of humanity because they've exchanged what? They've exchanged the Creator for the creaturely gifts. Now, we could talk about that for the rest of the morning, but every one of us in here, and I'll put myself at the top of the list, not in an act of false humility, I mean, just sincerely, this week I've been wrestling with it. We, our tendency is just to put the creaturely gift above the Creator. Which is where we get all discombobulated internally, and we get all out of whack because our our desires have become disordered again, and we will struggle with this till the day we die, from the stupidest things to the biggest things. Right? We get all out of whack. We exchange the creator for the creature. But what? When? When? When Romans one, these those who desire the gift, the creaturely gifts over the creator. It says, and these are haunting words. Boy, I'll just leave them with you. But he, God says that he delivers them over to what they really want. Oh, that's, that's the part that's so scary, right? He lets them have what it is that they really want. I mean, if I can give a kind of um, silly and pedestrian illustration of this. you know, I have, I have a three-year-old um, little girl about to be four in June. Never in the history of humanity has a living being loved chocolate more <laughs> i have I have not seen the like it's it is it's unbelievable um, not candy chocolate i mean it's it 's a very directed thing. She will wake up in the morning and she will ask about it. I found her um one morning sitting on top of our uh, the the um, kitchen cabinets, the countertops with a sprite bottle open and getting into I mean, it 's it's a mess right? um and and what God is saying here in Romans one is that that His wrath is is just turning them over to what they really desire. Um, we we all know I think, and you can look back over the course of your own lives, and you can look even into the future. We all know what it is to want something so badly, and th- and that thing that you want so badly becomes a kind of tyranny in your life. That's got a tyrannical presence. Romans chapter 1 describes that as God's wrath this is, I mean that's it drives us to him um, so I think that's a common thread to recognize through these three three parables that Jesus gives that that sinful status is a lost status uh, and again that's not a matter of human consciousness per se that is if I can use seminary language that's an ontological reality that's a that's an aspect of their being whether you're conscious of it or not okay secondly we see as a kind of gathering theme of these three um, parables. The gospel is for the outcast. The gospel is for the outcast. Um, The gospel is for those who live on the margins, right? Who live on the margins when it comes to the kingdom of God. That's again this gathering theme. Um... It's the, the, it's the people who think they deserve to be there, who find themselves out in the field, still working. And this is the part about the parable of the prodigal son that I, it bothers me to this day, and I'm sure it bothers you too. I don't know how it happened. We don't get to put the pieces together. It's just a story, so we can't press it too far about the bits that we don't have. But no one told the elder brother about the party. I mean, that's the part that drives me so nuts in that story. He's just out, he's whacking with the sheaves down. He's like, "What's going on at the house right now?" And no one sent him a memo. I mean, it's like, I mean, that's that's this. And again, I think we're meant to feel um, the angst of that because we get a very clear scene before the parable is over that the elder brother really thought that party should have been all about him but he wasn't even invited. Now, of course, he was compelled to come in eventually when he has the interaction, but at some point in time, he doesn't see himself as the outcast, but he is the outcast. Both brothers, the older and the younger, they're both outcasts. One is conscious of it, the other is living into a reality that does, that does not comport with what really is. No, I and mean, that's the, I think the challenge you have here. So the gospel is for the outcast. And I think the force of the, of the two lost sons is that they're both outcasts. One of them just doesn't know it. And then uh, thirdly, thirdly, we see a linking together um, of hearing and rejoicing, hearing and rejoicing. That's the open-ended character of the parable of the prodigal son, because the 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 older brother, and you know that this because of the scene of Luke fifteen one, and the Pharisees are grumbling because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, you know that this is kind of moving toward um, leaning into that particular crowd. So the elder son is central to the dramatic movement of the prodigal son, and he he he's hearing. You remember? That? I mean, that's part of the story here. Um, he hears a party. He he goes to inquire. He hears the announcement from his father, right, that everything that I have is yours. Um, and it, it's it's a gospel announcement from the father to the older son, even though the older son might not think he is in need of the gospel announcement. He gets the gospel announcement from the father. And what we're left open-ended is, is that son going to end in a rejoicing state like the prodigal is, or will he not? because there's a linking between hearing and rejoicing. Now that of course is very reformational and very adventy if you've been around here enough, right? I mean we talk a lot about here about the primacy of human agency as a hearing agency. We hear first the announcement of the gospel that then moves us to a state of our eyes then being opened. That elder brother had to hear in order for his eyes to be opened, because what he was seeing about himself and the world around him was not true. Um, and this is a this is a difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, I've actually been thinking about this, this week with my kids, right, and um, and my stupidity with them. Uh, you know, we we uh, we, we rarely it, it's hard work to question your own judgment about what you see. I mean, in other words, I think on autopilot. We believe what we see, and we believe our assessment and interpretation of what we're seeing as well. I mean, I, I think we're, we're just given to that naturally in our own human fallen condition. We will, we'll, we'll see a scenario that unfolds, and we will reduce it, something rather complex, to something that's manageable, that's, that we can communicate, that we can pass it on. And, then, um, and that helps us, I think, with some ease, because now we have the situation and the scene under control. Until someone comes in and speaks another word and says, But have you seen it from this angle or from that? And then all of a sudden you realize that this complex phenomenon that you've reduced to a sort of simple narrative has so many sides to it that, that really are beyond your control. I mean, so much of it, I think of it as from parents, so much of it is well, about, I want to control the outcome for my kids. And, um, I mean, well, how, it's just absurd and silly, right? Um, and, and that's what's going on here. The, 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 this, the elder brother, he knows the scene. And it's so, painfully obvious to him the, the the prodigality of this younger brother and, and by the way he leaves he doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to his father um, and, and by the way there's no reason for us to doubt the veracity of what the elder brother is communicating you're throwing a party a fatted calf which was i think worth. i read something culture something like worth 10 goats i mean and, and by the way, if you've read anything about first century culture, it's not like our world, you know, where we try to have some meat protein a lot. Um, I mean, they, they, ate, they ate meat very rarely, and it was only on high occasions. So, so killing a goat and having goat curry in the first century world, I don't think they had that, but whatever they were eating, you know, goat shawarma, I guess we may say, um, that was a special day. A fatted calf? That's that's worth ten of those. This is this is a huge celebration, and 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 it's so patently obvious to the elder brother that this is wrong. You're celebrating the one that went off, and he and and let's put this in a cultural context. A couple things, and and those of you who have read maybe like Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, or you've heard sermons, you you know about these cultural things. But but for a young man to ask for the inheritance from his father early. Wasn't necessarily completely out of line, but it was, it was looked down on within the Jewish world and the Greco Roman world as well. That, that, that was, it's not just a Jewish thing. This is a kind of a Greco Roman thing. And what you see with the request is, in effect, the younger brother is saying, I'm going to abdicate my responsibility of, uh, of the, whatever, is it the seventh, the eighth commandment, honoring my father and my mother because I want what's mine now and I'm going to move. it it it's a hu- culturally speaking it's it's a huge demonstration of public shame to the father public shame and we still get that I think in the south some um I mean I think generally American culture is not as much an honor shame culture um as it once was but in the south there's still the deep residue I think of the kind of honor and shame culture if you, if you read any sort of history on the Civil War, I mean, I mean, that, the whole Civil, the, the Confederacy. I mean, this, this is an honor and shame world, um, and we we don't, you know, but I think we still have some of that in the South. I mean, public shaming of your parents in that way—it was just such a huge deal, and that's what's happening in this this first-century world. Um, and he's shaming his father. He takes the inheritance, and what? How does the elder brother give the narrative? Well, you know that he squandered your money on prostitutes. I mean that's that's gotta hurt, you know, to get that kind of report back. The and and so in other words, the elder brother he sees it so clearly, but he hasn't heard yet, and he has to open the ear to hear because it's the opening of the ear to hear that will allow him to see what it is that these three parables are trying to show us, and that is there is a linking between rejoicing and hearing. And once you hear and recognize what's going on, that lostness has now been overcome with being found. That need that leads necessarily to rejoicing. And the Pharisees are grumbling; they're not rejoicing. The elder brother is is uh, grumbling and not rejoicing. And we end the scene in Luke 15 with him standing out on the doorpost—I mean, on the front porch—wondering whether or not he's going to come in or not. And so the question I think that's left with you and me is: Are we are we going to go into? few other things about this. Let me see what time we got. Oh, we're not, oh yeah, we're good. A few other things. Let, let me back up and just go through these three real fast. The lost sheep. I think there's some significant linkages going on with the parable of the lost sheep to Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34. Just to point those out to you. These are Old Testament imageries about God being our shepherd. And the character of God as our shepherd has been experienced in the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing when he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners is he's demonstrating what the shepherding character of God Almighty is like. That that's the force I think of this parable of the of the lost lost sheep. What does it look like for God to be a shepherd or well, seeing what it looks like for God to be a shepherd? The second thing that I think we see is this in this lost coin parable. Which this um, lady lost what would be considered a drachma, a denarii, that's a whole day's worth of work. And she again rejoices in the finding of that uh, which was which was lost. So I think you see those those sort of the, the linking here, rejoicing over that, which was lost. And then when we get to the last one, which is, of course, is the biggie, the parable of the prodigal son. We know that Deuteronomy 28 tells us that rebellious sons can be stoned. By the way, there's no. This is an interesting thing about Old Testament law. We have no narratives that I know of in the Old Testament that actually demonstrate that law being actualized. It's an interesting thing, actually. Um, but we. But, but the point is, um, rebellion is a. Is, it's a really big deal. Right? I mean, this is, and so that's that's the scene that's going on here. Prodigality is a very serious ma- matter. Um, uh, and so what's the and, and then in this sort of movie you have this missing conclusion that is it's open to the Pharisees and Pharisees of all time recognizing that they are outcasts too so what's the invitation in the prodigal son story the invitation is to accept God's attitude towards sinners and those who are in need of the Savior to accept God's attitude towards sinners and toward those who are in need of the Savior I've often thought about, and I haven't done this yet, but I'd like to think through how the book of Jonah and the prodigal son parable begin to fuse onto one another. I haven't seen anybody talk about this in the literature, so I'm always careful. You know, the, the Christian, Christian theologians and being novels, not always a very good thing. You know, I think Charles Hodge from Princeton Seminary once boasted publicly, I've never thought a new thought. Um, And that was a positive thing in his theological world. Um, So I want to be careful about this. But I do think there's something about the story of Jonah. Because what we feel in Jonah is the same kind of internal dynamic that we feel in the prodigal son. Because Jonah is both the prodigal and the elder brother at the same time as well. Isn't that something? I mean, here's Jonah by the end of chapter 2 celebrating the salvation of God. He went to the far country. I mean, Jonah goes to Tarshish. Uh, where is Tarshish? We really don't know, but let's just for sake of argument say modern day Spain, which in the in the ancient world, that's as far as you went. When you think about sort of a flat a flat uh, cosmic order, you get past Spain, you go a little bit and you fall off. I mean, that's it. Um, so he's going to Tarshish to escape the presence of God. He's going into the far country. And what does God do? Well, God, God intercepts him on his way to the far country. Um, and gives him a means of salvation, which was this fish that swallows him. And by the end of Jonah 2, which is this beautiful psalm, what do we see Jonah saying? Salvation is from the Lord. I recognize that even, even me, a prophet of God, was in need of the saving grace of God. I was, I mean, if we can put it in terms of Jonah chapter 2, I had just been given a one-way ticket to Sheol land. The land of the dead. The land that's absent the presence of God. I mean, read Jonah too. Some homework this week. On the way down in the belly of the fish, what does Jonah say? I'll never see your temple again. He's lamenting, I'll never be near your covenantal presence again. I mean, if you get swallowed by a big fish and you begin to plummet into the depths of the ocean, that's you know, you don't think that that's the instrument of your salvation in the moment. You got to get thrown up before you realize like that. That's worked out okay. Otherwise, you get. I don't know. S- silly here, I'm sorry, but I'm into shark movies. It's it's the 13 year it's in the it's the 13 year old in me. Um, and apparently there's a new one coming out this summer. You seen this? The Meg is what it's called. About megalodon, you know, the prehistoric um, 80 foot shark or whatever. I mean, there's there's evidence for the existence of something like this. Can you imagine the Jonah getting swallowed by Megalodon ah, he's gone, I mean, it's part of the fun of the story, I think I mean, if you get swallowed by Megalodon um it's it's just it's a bad day all around all right this is a bad day, and that's what I think we have here in Jonah, and yet it throws Jonah up and now Jonah can say on the far side of the experience, well that which I thought was the instrument of, of my death, God saved me in this. he's the prodigal that was in need, completely lost in need of the saving activity of God is Jonah not the, did he not die in the fish and get resurrected i if if you read the sign of Jonah that way with what Jesus says that's a possibility of seeing the link i don't think there's any evidence to say that Jonah died but i think the imagery that Jesus picks up on in the gospels is that because i mean Jonah goes to sheol and then he comes back after three days. So I, whether or not Jonah's sort of conscious bodily... I mean, this this is a story that's that's inflated from the beginning. One of the fun things I do with my students at, at Beeson is we'll read through... Jonah's what all Hebrew students read first. Right? It makes them feel real good. And, um, and then we turn to Job and make him feel real bad. Um, <laughs> and the teacher, too. It's, it's, it's hard. Uh, but the, the point is, you know, Jonah... From beginning to end, uses a Hebrew word so many times that that if you it's gadol, which means great, um, and it was a great city, um, it was a great journey, um, it was a great fast. It was, a, I mean, the word gadol is used so many times, and you realize that that's part of the force of the story. The story meant to make you feel there's some hyperbole here. I mean, this is this is fun, and it's meant to be fun. I don't know if you any of you read Anne Rice's. She wrote two Jesus novels. Um, and wrote them, I think, from a kind of conservative Catholic perspective. There's a scene in the first novel, um, Road to Cana or something like that. I can't remember the name of the novel. But there's a scene when Jesus, with Jesus as a little boy sitting around a fire, a campfire, and Joseph, who's not yet dead, is telling the kids a story um, and you, you, these kids are literally rolling around on the ground around the campfire, around the, uh, laughing their heads off. And you know what story he's telling? He's telling them the story of Jonah. Jonah is comedic. It's meant to be comedic. Um, and and by the end of Jonah, as I think, as at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, which doesn't have quite the comedic feel to to it that Jonah does, um, but by the end, you're you're meant to sort of feel, well, the joke's on me as the reader. I didn't know that. I thought the joke was on Jonah. But really, the joke is on me. Because Jonah ends the same way the parable of the prodigal son ends. It ends open-ended. I mean, here's Jonah who's now, he knows his experience as the prodigal son. But now he's turned chapter 3 and chapter 4 back into the elder brother, sitting on the outskirts of the town waiting for a fireworks show so that his prophetic word will come true. And he, And God doesn 't do it, and then Jonah says in jonah chapter four exactly what the elder brother is saying to his father. He says, "I knew you would do this <laughs> because it's just like you, God, to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger it 's just like you to meet forgiveness and their mo- I mean, sinners in their moment of repentance and to relinquish what you said you were going to do to them it's just like you to be kind, and so then God says well i 'm going to have I think God's harder on Jonah than the father is with the elder brother in Luke 15, frankly. I mean, what does God... God says, well, let's have a little... We're going to have a little object lesson here, Jonah. Here's the object lesson. I'm going to give you a little plant. I'm going to let it grow over your head. It's really hot in the Middle East. Those of you who've been there, you know that. I can remember in the late 90s doing some missionary work on the island of Cyprus, getting off the... Plane on the, you know, there's no um, skywalk. You go right onto the tarmac there in Limassol, Cyprus, and feeling an alien presence come off that black. I mean, that, you talk about heat. That's another kind of heat. And here's Jonah in the Middle East experiencing that heat. And God says, "I'm going to give you a little kikayon plant, a little gerd plant. It's going to grow over you. It's going to give you shade. And and uh, and then God kills the plant overnight with this worm." And uh, and Jonah says, I mean, he's just distraught. He's like the older brother. And what does Jonah say? He says, well, you know, it's better that I die than to go through this. Kill me now. And, and how does the whole thing end? Is it right, Jonah, for you to be so upset over your little plant and not be concerned about these 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and many animals too? The end. That's it. That's um, it. And that's why, I, th- I mean, I've the, the Jonah and the prodigal son are doing something to us. And they're forcing us, I think, as we enter into the story, to see ourselves all over the place. Um, and probably all over the place at the same time and in multiple times. We know what it's like when we're the prodigal. We know what it's like when we put ourselves in the position of the older brother. We know what it's like to be slighted. We know what it's like to not like certain things that go on in God's kingdom. We don't like it that we worked all day and those people that just worked one hour and they get the same pay. That's not right. And then God says, well, you know what? You really kind of shouldn't get any pay at all, right? I mean, this is my king. This is my grace. We all know the feelings that are associated with this. And the parable leaves us in a place that's an open invitation to those of us who read them. Are you going to come in and rejoice in God's party? Because he's throwing it. And the only people who get to come in are those who recognize that they're outcasts too. Um, the older brother didn't know that he was an outcast, but he was. And what does the father say to him? I love this, because I think we tend to dismiss the Pharisees. Right? I think we tend to think, Jesus kicks the Pharisees in the knees all the, all the time. I mean, we use that term pejoratively, don't we, about the self-righteous and the legalistic? They're just Pharisaical. Jesus loved the Pharisees. I believe it. That's why he lean so hard into them. Um, everything that I have is yours. So why don't you come on in? Um, and whether or not they do or not, we is yet to be seen. Okay. Well, anybody want to fire a question around before we land this plane? I think our time is almost up. Any, any, anybody want yeah, to ask question? Mrs. Langford. Say something about because I, I just recently sort of um, considered this when the father and the older brother have their exchange, and the older brother says, "This son of yours." Yeah. Squandered and yeah. whatnot. To me, doesn't that sort of suggest a lack of relationship between the two brothers? And there was some of the sin of the older brother. He would not even call his brother a brother. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. I think there's. I'm trying to think through how to how to articulate that. But yes, the the use the use of that demonstrative pronoun in that way. Um, sets himself up over against. I think right. that's the posture that you have here. So there's both f- familial fissure that's going on, right. but there's also religious fissure. I think that's that's where you're getting at with the Pharisees. I mean, in other words, the, we there's this sort of hierarchy that's going on as well of of religious status before God. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is to say you're not seeing this properly. Um, matter of fact a certain kind of confidence in your religiosity in itself is exhibit A that you're an outcast mm-hmm. because that I think that's the, so yes I think that this son of yours language itself on the lips of the elder brother is damning evidence in the courtroom yeah. I think it's meant to be yeah anybody else want to th- yeah. yeah I was reading something uh, the, 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 the contention was that the part He lacks the what? Lacks the the of the cross of the sacrifice of Christ. If the Muslims people criticize that, huh? I've not heard that. Um, I mean, my my initial my initial reaction to that would be, we have to be careful. We have to be careful to force any biblical text to do too much. And as we're like, well, want things to to you know, this text doesn't talk about that or that sermon didn't do this and I I was I remember one of my own seminary prophets used to teach by slogans and he would say when you try to say everything when you say anything you'll you'll end up saying nothing at all you know that's that's good advice um and and so I I, I mean whether or not there's a statement of the cross here of course there's a there's an implicit side to that within the t- t- totality of the canon but I, I'm not, that wouldn't trouble me. I think we're, we're, we might be forcing it to do more here than we need to. But obviously the cross shapes the whole of the Gospels. There's no understanding of any narratival shape of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without their tyrannical movement toward Calvary. All of them are going there. Luke as well. We're going to blink and we're going to be there. So to kind of heist it from its larger narrative movement would be problematic as well. But I don't know about the Muslim critique of this. I'm, I'd be very curious to, to find something on that. It's interesting. Yeah. If you find it, shoot it to me by email, because I'd be very that's very fast. You know, Tom Wright, everybody loves N.T. Wright. Um, That's fine, I I think. Um, I I I do too. I think he's on the side of the angels. You know, Tom Wright has a certain reading on the parable of the prodigal son, where he sees this whole parable as a reading of exile and return. I mean, everyone would have saw this as a kind of parable of Israel being in exile and coming from return. That was the moment that I read Tom Wright, because I had a huge man crush on everything that he had written and um, that was the moment when I said I don't think so you know I think I think that that's, I do think this is a story about repentance and I think to diminish that would be to lose the kind of force of what's going on with these, this kingdom notion yes sir given you that, like Tom Wright don't you I'm sorry uh, <laughs> no, that, that's fine that's, that's okay that's, <laughs> um, given what you just stated about the parable yeah. I would contrast that with Job who never gives up mm. despite all the mess that he's put through mm. and the prodigal has to reach that same mm. place or not Is that you know I this is one of the reasons why I love that I get to do what I get to do for a living I mean really I'm you've sort of prodded this on me because the, the Bible is endlessly fascinating when it's read in an internal conversation with itself and I would say the best of the Christian interpretive tradition does that instinctually. In other words, they're going to read the Bible in a larger canonical conversation with itself. We, we, our tendency is what? We, we want to kind of move toward a deconstruction first. In other words, there's the story of the prodigal. What does it have to do with me? So we're kind of we're rushing to that part. Whereas like the church fathers, the reformers, they're going to want to see, well, what's the Bible doing here in its internal dynamic? And what, what might happen if I read the prodigal son in relationship to Jonah? or in relationship to Job. What kind of insight might come there from that? Now, there were some dangers with that. I mean, we could talk about it in an interpretation class, but... The point is maybe. I mean, I think, why not to think about these things in relationship the one to the other? There is certainly a kind of external suffering that's brought onto Job and that is brought onto the prodigal son that brings them both to a place of recognizing who they really are and what they really need. I mean, Job gets to that place too. Shiny, clean Job in Job 1 and 2 is not the Job you're going to find in chapter 27. He's a different cat at that moment in time um, and gets it. And um you know, like so yeah. But I, I would—I'll take that as a challenge. Sort of think through that. It's good. Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking about what and this son of yours—it sounds a lot like this woman you gave me. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> this woman you gave me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. That's that's the first marital fight that we have in the Bible, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yes, sir. I'm asking you, in the first parable, the sheep. Who are the 99 sheep that don't get cloths, that don't wander around? I think it's the older brother. I mean, if, if you want to press it. Now, now, again, part of the imagery, and this is one of the challenges of interpreting the parables, part of the imagery of the parables and where one links them externally, what's their reference? Remains a challenge, and that's why if you go through the, the history of the interpretive tradition, you'll find all kinds of answers to that question, actually. Who are the sheep? Who is this? Who's the father? Um, yielding very interesting results. But I think if one were to kind of keep it tethered to what's going on here, um, the elder brother isn't lost. In other words, the father says, everything that I have is yours. Um, the sheep haven't wandered off. I mean, the, and I think this is a positive statement about the Pharisees. You know, they're, they're trying to attend to Torah. They're trying to order their life according to what God has said. And in an effort to do so, the things have gotten off the rails, even though they're not technically lost in that moment. But by the end, we'll realize that even that I guess, the lost sheep have their own state of lostness that they're unaware of. So that's how how I would answer that today. But I might answer it differently next week. But I think that's what's going on. Do you think Jesus is redefining what it means to be in the fold? Yes, I, so think, I think so. Think he's like, I'm going to a new definition of what yeah. it means to be. Yeah, who's in the fold? Right. You're in the fold, but that they are too, and I'm going to go get them and bring them in. I'm going to compel them to come in. And that was the part that I think... There's no longer a, kind of a religious order of class here. Um, the, the country club mentality with the Torah observance is over with Jesus. That's over. Um, it, those who need know they they need a Savior, they're all welcome to come, whether or not they're members of the club or not. Well, and with regard to sheep, I mean, sheep are sheep, and so it's not like they're good sheep and bad sheep. And so- <laughs> the other ninety nine would be the lost sheep. Yeah. Just like it. Yeah. It is fun that Jesus used I mean, sheep were a huge commodity in the first century world. I mean it was an important important aspect of culture and commerce. But there's but you're right, they're still sheep. And I think that's that's part of the poignancy <coughs> of this as well is you know sheep you know, sheep don't have a lot going for them, I don't think. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're children of the king, right, Emily? Yeah children of the king. all right, let me let me let me close this with prayer. Lord bless us as we um, as we roam this world, lord, we 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 know who we are. we're We're all these figures in the story. Um, and we find ourselves in different moments, Lord, but in every one of them we know that we're the, we are the, we are the one that is in need of the saving health of our Savior. And Lord, we're all Gentiles in here, I think, most of us at least, and and here we are eating at your table. Um, in your kingdom, celebrating the Eucharist this morning together, which is its own kind of kingdom banquet. You've invited us, all the outcasts, to come and kneel and to receive the goodness of your grace once again. And we're thankful, Lord, that um, you have come and rescued us. You found us when we were lost and brought us into the fold, redefining what it means to be the people of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.